Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the budget survives a vote. Aaron O'Toole must be the one who's more relieved that the budget is finally passed and that there's no snap election because he would have suffered maybe more damage if there was a spring election. Ontario asks the federal government for assistance in getting more medical personnel into the province. To help us with a request to the other provinces and territories and also to see if they're able to send us any further supports in terms of personnel from either the Canadian Armed Forces or the, uh, the Red Cross. And should Canada offer help to India? as it's ravaged by COVID-19. Yes, I do support helping our friends in India uh, with ventilators, with equipment if we can. Clearly the absence of uh, oxygen supplies for the country being ravaged by, by the, the variant there uh, is something we should do. It's Tuesday, April 27th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Susan Delacorte, columnist for the Toronto Star. Susan, thank you for being with us today. Good morning, Mark. Let's start by talking about the federal budget, which has passed. And I, I don't think there's any surprise about that. But the, the question that results from that, I think, is what does it all mean? And is, is one of the outcomes the fact that we're way less likely now to have a spring election? Yeah, I think, um, you know, in another time, another universe, another wave or another lack of wave, we might have been talking about the idea that we were headed to a June election, although um, it's been quite surprising. I think you're seeing commentators starting to say this, that a week after a budget that was massive, 700 plus pages we are not talking much about the budget anymore. Hmm. It's that there was so much in that budget, but anything really substantial is going to come out, like childcare, for example, is going to come after negotiations with provinces, and we always know how compelling those are. So I, I think what's happened is, as is the case with many budgets, even big ones, even ones we've waited for two years, the real drama of it was, are we going to be pitched into an election? And once that's over, we're not talking so much about the budget anymore. Things, as they said in The Wizard of Oz, people come and go so quickly here. Mm -hmm. What we are talking about, of course, uh, is where we stand with the pandemic, with vaccinations across the country. Uh, and in Ontario in particular, uh, it's reached a, a level that I don't think many people expected for the third wave. It's, the numbers have come down a little bit in the last couple of days, but uh, there, there were some, some pretty serious numbers. There's also the story of a 13-year-old girl who has died of COVID, which is alarming, obviously. Um, and Ontario is now getting help from the Canadian military, from uh, emergency doctors that are being brought in from Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, and so... I think all of that just illustrates how how very much alive the situation remains, right? Yes, and how very much different this third wave is from the first wave. I wrote uh, today that Ontario has now become a, in the the pandemic has turned the rules of the federation upside down. It was always Ontario was the have province and Newfoundland uh, was the have not, and here we saw. Uh, symbolically, whatever. It's just nine people, but it's a powerful um, development in this pandemic is that, that mighty Newfoundland is sending in nine people to Ontario, including the Premier's wife, 
to to help out with Ontario. And another thing that's really struck me about this um, this third wave, I, I think everybody remembers that the first wave saw an enormous amount of cooperation between Ontario and Ottawa. Uh, we had Doug Ford and Christian Freeland calling each other each other's therapists. We had uh, the Prime Minister out in the fall doing lots of events with Doug Ford, being out in public with him. This, uh, I, I really was struck yesterday by, by how much tension is back in this relationship and that's because the stakes are higher we are in a different place and people are looking for people to blame uh doug ford is is in isolation uh literally and metaphorically uh the prime minister has had a rough few months as well so every evidence we have politically and substantially with this third wave it is so much different from from the first wave. I'm wondering whether this this cooperation now between Ontario and Ottawa will sort of reset the relationship to along the lines of where it was hmm. last year. Yeah. Um, but uh, but certainly you didn't see Doug Ford out saying, I just got to give the federal government credit for this. There was none of that yesterday. This is a very low-key ask, but a very high-stakes um Gambit, we've got, uh, I think it's three teams going in uh, to uh, to Ontario. We've got um, Army, the, the forces, uh, who were in long-term care homes last time, but this time this is just to help the hospitals. We've got nurses um, and the Red Cross. So it, it is a sign of, of, of where we're at in this, uh, in this third wave for sure. Yeah, and I think especially with the numbers of Canadians who are being vaccinated right now, the the vaccination numbers have gone way up, although there are stories of, of pharmacies and other uh, sources of the vaccine running short on supply in the last 24 hours. Um, but having said all of that, uh, I think everybody expected that as Canadians are getting vaccinated, that there would be a more, a more pervasive optimism about all of that. I know for the people who are being vaccinated, obviously it, it's it's a, a moment of hope. But with all the bad news about the rate of infection and, and everything else that's going on, it seems like uh, we're just not getting the bump that would have come from the large numbers of people that are being vaccinated. No, we desperately need hope and confidence right now, and we're not there yet. I think everybody will remember, the you know, governments at all levels said it wouldn't be until the beginning of April that we started to see a real, you know, I think the Prime Minister called it the big lift. And we are seeing evidence of that. And this morning, I checked the, uh, the STARS vaccine tracker, and Doug Ford had promised that by early May, I think it's May 6th, that 40% of Ontarians would be vaccinated. And we're at 30% right now, and that's still two weeks away. So it's not like... there. I think the lag is more um, of the emotional and spiritual side right now than than logistical, and it's seeing, you know, things roll out in the United States too. But we, yes, we'd all expected that that with spring would come the kind of hope that we felt last spring when it seemed like, you know, a couple of weeks of locking down or a month or two of locking down would uh, would cure this thing. This has been a year and a bit for people, and they're exhausted, and the variants are worrying. The idea that, that 
as soon as you tamp this down in one area, it rises up in others. So I think over the next week, you're going to also see the vaccines. It seems a a trend this week going into hot zones. Yesterday, Ontario's science advisors recommended that 50% of the vaccines um, go to hot zones like Peel and Toronto, where we're seeing these uh, the variants take hold. So I think the vaccine strategy is going to be changed midstream a bit. I don't think it's to the detriment of people on the regular schedule, but but uh, yes, the hope, confidence, and optimism has yet to catch up with the variants who are doing their best to extinguish it in all of us. Yeah, and speaking of the variants, and speaking of the of, of the sense that uh, that as one crisis abates, another looms within this pandemic. Um, there's the situation in India where many people feel it's it's getting out of control, and the question has arisen about what sort of help Canada should provide to India. What are your thoughts on that? Well, this focuses the mind a lot because I think Canadians have got, maybe rightly have gone through a, a sort of a selfish stage of this vaccine. Uh, rollout, which is us first, everybody else later. But I think, if nothing else, this this dangerous, dangerous, exploding variant in India reminds Canada that uh, the whole world has got to be vaccinated before we're all safe from it. Because the longer it's lurking there in developing or non-developing countries or in in pockets of the world, the more chance it has to get the best of us. So it's fueling two reactions. Yes, Canada uh, is talking about aid to India. That's that's probably a good thing. We should be thinking of other countries. I think it's also seeing another round of discussion. We already have banned the flights from India and Pakistan, but you're seeing another severe and, and a round of calls from the opposition. Yesterday, uh, there will be more today, I would imagine, uh, when the prime minister does his briefing for why we aren't uh, why we aren't shutting our borders even more to travel. Mm. All right, very quickly, Susan, uh, we're almost out of time, but uh, there have been more questions about what Katie Telford, the prime minister's chief of staff, knew about the allegations uh, against Jonathan Vance and when she knew it. Um, there. The, the government, the Liberals, have been trying to steer this back towards an internal investigation within the Canadian Armed Forces rather than a political uh, inquiry, uh, but the opposition continues to ask a lot of questions about this. Well, the opposition is seeing this in the same context as the We Charity uh, investigation last year, in the same political context anyway. I think that this is way more serious than, uh, than the We business. Uh, during that, uh, that controversy last summer, Katie Telford did. She's a very private, doesn't go out in public person very much, but she, uh, she did testify. And so I think uh, by doing so, she probably set a bar for herself. And the opposition is saying if, if Ms. Telford could come out during the We Charity investigations, surely she can come out and talk about uh, about this. The Liberals do that; they've broken uh, the tradition a few times with having even the Prime Minister testify. But I, I sit around long enough to remember when Conservative government said this too: hmm. is that accountability is about ministers uh, and not about staffers. That that uh, that 
that it is it is the pol- politicians who have to bear responsibility for things, right. not staffers. But um, my best bet right now is that you will not see the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff testify, but I could be wrong. Mm. Uh, she may decide that uh, that that she did so in the We Charity story, and she might want to do so in this as well. All right. Susan, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. Thanks, Mark. That's Susan Delacourt, columnist for the Toronto Star. Emilia Victoria Vigas was 13 years old when she became one of the youngest Canadians to die from COVID-19. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Globe and Mail, André Picard argues the death of a child speaks volumes about Canada's tepid COVID-19 response. Picard writes, The death of 13-year-old Emily Villegas is a wake-up call and a brutal reminder that COVID-19 is not done with us yet. One of the most disturbing third-wave trends we're seeing, entire families, more often than not working-class and racialized, have been sickened and hospitalized. The best way to shield children from the pandemic is to protect their parents, to take the necessary measures to get the spread of the coronavirus under control. In an editorial, the Toronto Sun argues in favor of policies that allow Canadians to stay active and happy outdoors this summer. The Sun writes, For the second year in a row, Canadians stand to be denied a summer. We support following sensible public health protocols that help limit the spread of COVID-19. The problem, though, as many health experts have attested, is that outdoor transmission is extremely rare, and it's important to keep fit by engaging in outdoor activities. Canadians are now at a breaking point. The less people believe the rules are beneficial ones, the less likely they are to follow them. In the Toronto Star, Gordon Laxer argues, Canada must support Alberta and Saskatchewan to wean the country off oil and gas production. Laxer writes, It would take time for Alberta's oil workers and the communities they live in to transition to a post-oil economy in a well-supported plan with help from the rest of Canada. The alternative is to wait until others stop buying Alberta's bitumen and leave oil workers to fend for themselves. It's time to acknowledge the challenge and start discussing how the rest of Canada can financially support Albertans and Saskatchewanians to make the transition. Now here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Governor of the Bank of Canada will be appearing before the House of Commons Finance Committee today, and as CPAC's Martin Stringer reports, MPs will want to hear about what was a pretty upbeat forecast last week from the bank. Mark, Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem will appear before the Finance Committee at 4 p.m. this afternoon, and much of the focus will be on his latest optimistic forecast for the growth in the Canadian economy. The bank is forecasting a 6.5% growth rate in the economy this year, and that constitutes a very healthy recovery for the most part. Much of that growth will be fueled by pent-up consumer demand and the boom in the real estate market. However, in his report, the governor does warn that some sectors of the economy, such as travel and hospitality, may continue to struggle. Governor Macklem and the bank were also bullish in their forecast for the world economy, forecasting a global growth rate of 6.75%. However, Mark, the bank's latest predictions all come with a large asterisk beside them, an uncertainty 
that the bank recognizes that's caused by the big question, how long, how deep, and how painful will the third wave of the pandemic be in Canada? And how long might lockdowns and other public health measures last? Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will address Canadians on the COVID-19 situation, along with several members of the Cabinet and the Chief Public Health Officer of Canada. He will also attend question period. Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland will participate in a virtual discussion about women's economic empowerment. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh will hold a news conference to speak about the Parliamentary Budget Officer's report on excessive profits. Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna will attend a virtual infrastructure event in the Ottawa region. Special Representative for the Prairies Jim Carr will meet with business leaders in Saskatchewan to talk about the federal budget. The Minister of Middle-Class Prosperity, Mona Fortier, will take part in a virtual event hosted by the Chamber of Commerce and Industry of the South Shore of Montreal. Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude Bibeau will host a panel discussion with women in agriculture across Manitoba. Minister for Women, Mariam Monsef, will speak about budget investments to combat the she-session. Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson will speak with the Oakville Chamber of Commerce. And Minister of Small Business Mary Ng will meet with the CEO of a Burnaby-based business to talk about opportunities for clean tech companies. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Tuesday, April 27th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.